There we are. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Price of Entry podcast today. Today, we are absolutely graced with the presence of the one and the only Steph Donker. Steph, how are you? I'm great, Brendo. How are you? Good. I think you're especially great because you've just uh, figured out some news that means that you don't have to isolate for seven days like you previously thought a couple of hours ago. Yeah, look, I mean, not that I'm not used to the ISO life, having lived in Melbourne for, you know, ever now. Um, It's really pleasant to know that I've got the option of exiting the house with the kids if need be. So that's a breath of fresh air. How's that for like a breath of fresh air? Like that, that that fact that you can leave your house is refreshing. Well, actually, it's just more refreshing to know that I don't have to explain to my three-year-old who's in the why phase of why we can't go anywhere because that conversation could go for a very long time. Yeah, I feel like there'd be a lot of follow-up questions from that. And I don't have a lot of follow-up answers, so it's nice to kind of avoid that segue. I feel like the the, the mandates and the laws, and no matter what your opinion on them is, is if if you can't explain it to a three-year-old, it probably doesn't make sense. I think there's a few people older than the age of three that don't quite understand what's going on either. So I'm trying to like funnel it down to three people. It's challenging. I'm I'm one of them. I had a um a incidents too strong a word a encounter on the weekend again working events and was running a at a beer festival and the COVID marshals were there mm. and they stood back and watched for a good couple of minutes. And observing with the mask on, da, 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 da. and it was Saturday, so the rules had just changed. We're outdoors. Mm. We're outdoors. Open plan. I'm talking to customers, you know, 1.5, all that sort of stuff. Um, but then I go over to them, and I'm like, so can I get some clarity? Like, what is the rules? Obviously, we're outdoors. And she's like, well, obviously, if you're serving, you need to wear a mask because the rules are if you're serving, you need to wear a mask. I'm like, so I'm pouring a beer, and I give them the beer. She's like, yep. You got to wear a mask. I'm like, cool. So once they're holding it, I'm not serving them anymore. She's like, no, cool. So then we stand around and chat for ten minutes. I can take that mask off. She's like, exactly. Oh, great. I'm like, cool. The fact that to pour the beer, I put my mask on, turn around, not facing the customer, do the thing, turn around again, not talking, give it to them, then take off and then talk them. She's like, yep, that's exactly right because you need to protect yourself. Like. They're really dangerous when there's a beer in hand. And I, when there's no beer, there's no danger. I, I, it was just so just like, I'm like, really? He's like, absolutely. There's 3,000 cases today. You've got to protect yourself um, from, from the coronavirus. I'm like. I'm not going to lie. I had a moment. So, obviously, I work in a hospital. Um, yes. Let's talk about what you do. I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's really relevant because we're how many years into this COVID thing? So, it's been our lives. We are hospital-based. We don't really ease restrictions even when the community does. In fact, we tend to get worse because the cases mm. go up. So, we have to be more careful. Yeah. Um, but for the first time since the masks entered hospitals, which I think was about July 2020, so we've been wearing masks in increasing thickness and difficulty to breathe for this whole time. Um, and for the first time ever, I forgot to bring a mask to walk into the hospital. And I felt like a criminal because I was like, I just, I don't have one in my car because, you know, the, the rules of ease. So I just didn't have one sitting in my glove box like I normally do. It's like, sweet, I don't have to wear a mask to the shops. I'm just, yep, they'll throw it in the bin. It's fine. Of course, blanked, totally forgot I needed one to walk into the hospital. Um, and I was like, is someone going to pull me up? Am I going to get in major trouble? Is infection control just like looming in the CCTV? Um, but no, you know, it was anticlimactic. I walked in, I said, sorry, I forgot my mask. And they handed me a mask and I put it on and I continued 
continue with my day. So there you go. There you go. So what is it that you actually do at a hospital? At a hospital. So um, I am a nurse and a midwife and I work at a major tertiary hospital in Melbourne. So by tertiary, it means that we're one of the centres that can provide like the most acute level care. Um, I work specifically in a maternity or a women's sort of based hospital. So the only patients of the male variety that we get are babies. Um, so very much a focus on women's health and um, specifically pregnancy related conditions. But we do have a, another ward and branches that are more like gynae onc. In fact, um, Cheryl Yim, Dr. Cheryl Yim, who you had on here a little while ago, she has been through the women's as well. Um, so it's pretty, yeah, I'm, I'm like the midwife side of that sort of thing. I know what you're talking about when you say gynae now. I'm like, I know what that is. I'm, you know I what can, ONG means. I know what that, I learned, I learned a lot in that podcast. I'm the portion of the ONG. Um, right. Yeah, so that's what I do. And the reason I introduce myself as a nurse and a midwife um, is because most people, if I said I'm a midwife, wouldn't really know what that means. So I kind of... And if they do, do they assume that by midwife, you're just the one catching the baby? Um, I think that because in Australia, so maternity systems around the world differ wildly and mm. specifically the Britain-Australian version of maternity care compared to the American version of maternity care is very different. Really? People's major exposure to birth is American-based TV shows. So when we think about birth and midwifery, um, I suppose if you were to watch a TV show, you would think that I'm that one that kind of stands in the background while the doctor's there yelling push. Mm. Um, not so much. So in Australia, we have a different structure. So midwives are the lead care providers for pregnancy-based care for women and their babies when they have no other sort of like medical complications going on. Um, and yes, that's that's what I do. I do catch the babies. Um, mm -hmm. I don't like to use the phrases, you know, deliver or um, I think the technical term is akusha, which means to catch. Um, oh, it literally does mean to catch. I think so. It's French. I was just being silly, but no, that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, I actually I like to think of myself as um, the person who gets the honour of being one of the first people to touch the baby. That's my job um, because women are the ones who birth their babies and women are the ones, you know, who I don't like. Pizzas are delivered. Babies aren't delivered. Um, but that's that's my job. I get to catch babies amongst a massive variety of other things. But, yes. Yeah, right. And when did you realise that this is what you wanted to do? And then how did you go about getting into it? I had a very direct um, path to my career, my vocation. So I went to the same school my whole life, prep to 12. Um, and then in year 12, you know, they ask you, what do you want to do? And you're there like, I don't know, I'm like 17. I don't know what I want to do. Um, and I was thinking about it and I, I was quite an academic person um, in my childhood and teens. So my parents really wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something that earned a lot of money. Um, I never had that inclination. I was, always knew I wanted to be a, a family sort of person. Um, I've got two kids and a husband. So I wanted something in my career that was space for that, but I also really loved working with people. And so I thought, how, how can I shape a career around working with people? So initially I wanted to um, do something medical. I thought about being an occupational therapist. I thought about being a speech pathologist. One point I wanted to be a forensics person who, you know, the chops open dead people. That's kind of working with people, but you know, 
not not the same. Not very chatty. Um, not very chatty. And I'm very chatty, as you can tell. So it didn't feel right. Um, and then I thought about I wanted to go into counselling. So I spoke with someone who worked as a counsellor and I asked them their advice. And she said to me, if you're going to go and be a counsellor, before you do your counselling training, you need to go and do something in healthcare or something in legal because when you're working with people in crisis, you will either be dealing with health crises or legal crises. So you need to go and get a grounding foundation of one or the other. So I was like, great, don't really want to be a lawyer, so I'm going to go and do something medical. Um, I thought about doing straight nursing, but I had quite good scores. And so I thought, what am I going to aim for that's got the, the highest score? And it was nursing and midwifery, a dual degree. So that's actually how I ended up in the career. It wasn't because I dreamt of being a nurse my whole life or anything like that, that a lot of people who get into this sort of vocation, it's, you know, my mum's a nurse, my grandma was a nurse, all my aunties are nurses, and therefore I'm a nurse too. I was the first person in my family, in my circle that I knew of who went into this. So it was actually quite a culture shock because it's shift work, it's night shift, it's um, a very it's a very female dominated industry. So I wasn't sort of used to that. It was um it was quite eye opening actually, but I'm really glad I ended up here because it's mm. actually ended up being like my sole calling to work mm. in. So I'm really mm. grateful that that lady told me not to go and be a counsellor. Because, frankly, I get to use those sorts of skills every day. A midwife is a very mixed bag of um, role, very, very mixed bag. You work with women who need, like the word midwife actually means with women. So your job as a midwife is to advocate for and facilitate the experience of the woman in all aspects of pregnancy, birth and postpartum care. So it's a very broad scope. Um, and the more you do it and the more women that you meet and encounter, the more you're shaped as a midwife to understand what that actually means. So I went into it thinking, sweet, I get to cuddle babies. It's going to be brilliant. Just going to, you know, that's my job. I cuddle babies and it's going to be amazing. But you get into midwifery thinking it's about the babies. And as you walk the journey, you realize it's entirely about the woman and the babies are just there as a subsect of the mum. And it's your job to hold the mother because the mother holds the babies. That's beautiful. And that was a very succinct summary. You covered a lot in, 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 in that. There's a lot to there. cover. It's There's a lot to cover. Thing. I'd like to wind it back to sort of that culture shock time yeah. that you're in there. And I love how, pun intended, clinical your path into it was. Well, it's not this. Well, then it's this and then it's this and it's this. It's very yeah, logical, very clear. Sort of like assessment and um, following that along right from the start, I suppose. But I... Yeah, so I went to school. I was that, you know, year 12, you go into uni and you do your uni and then you get a job. And that's exactly what I did. Very sort of straight cut, classic, yeah. primed for it in the school years. Not a lot of detours in my career path. Yeah. Um, so started uni. I was 17 when I started uni, so I was young. Um, did my, it's a four-year course. And I remember doing my very first placement. It was a nursing placement. And the reason I differentiate nursing and midwifery is because they're very different vocations. So I use my nursing skills in the con like in the context of my midwifery care. But if you put me on a nursing ward, I would be so lost because oh, I sorry. deal with heart stuff, kidney stuff. Like people right. come to me and go, oh, you're a nurse. Um, what do you think about this blood test result that I got? And it's like my 57-year-old dad asking me about his heart. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Do you have a uterus? I, I'm lost. <laughs> um, Unless you've got a uterus, you can't help. Seriously, though. Um, sounds like discrimination, Steph. I don't know about that. A little bit. Um, <laughs> but I just, it's funny, there's nursing is very broad. 
Right. Very, very broad. And so although I hold a nursing degree, I very much practice my nursing skills within a midwifery um, context. Mm. I had to do the general nursing. So harking back to my student years, I did have to do general nursing on like a medical base ward or aged care, surgical, that kind of thing. So I remember waking up at the absolute butt crack of dawn. It was still dark, freezing cold in winter and driving to the hospital and getting out of my car and thinking, who is up at this hour of the morning? Like it felt like the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Um, and you go in there and you get allocated your patients and you meet your patients and you get to know their stories and then you provide care to them. And it's very midwifery, um, nursing, sorry, is very structured. Mm. I work in emergency department when it's different, but nursing in general is very structured. It's, you know, eight o'clock medications are due when you get everybody through the shower and then 12 o'clock medications are due and then you hand over at one o'clock to your next shift and then you go home at 3.30 and you rinse and repeat the next day. Midwifery is like hot mess chaos compared to that. So nurses who study nursing first and then um, kind of specialise into midwifery come into it being like, you guys are all nuts and how is this working? Where is my structured day? But midwifery is like you go with the flow. Whatever you get, you get. You just got to be ready to jump in. It's very, um, it's very different. So that was a culture shock, just like the wake-up times, the shift work times, working weekends. Um, like I come from a family that was like nine to five businessy sort of things. Both my brothers are teachers, so they get their school holidays four times a year. And then there's me who's working Christmas Day. Like it's just, it's very different. It's a very different lifestyle. But um, How old were you when you'd first run into that? Were you still, you would have been what? I would have been 18, just 18. 18 yeah. and you're running into that. And you just kind of skipped over showering everybody. Yeah. Like as a, as a, as a non-nurse, the idea of having to shower somebody else is terrifying. Like, you know what? Give, I'm genuinely give, convinced that people could walk down the street naked and I would not notice because I've just been, I've seen so many bodies that I'm just used to it. So, yeah. I'd rather 2 a.m. wake ups. I just can't, I, I just can't picture myself. Like, and in doing this podcast, like, like some jobs I hear people do, I'm like, oh, I can see myself doing that, may not enjoy it, but I can at least picture in my mind's eye doing a role. Helping a 70-year-old woman bathe is just one thing that's just, I, I just, I just, it's not that I'm like, you know, I recoil at the thought. It's just, I can't picture myself doing that. I just, and, honestly, and you just gloss over it like, oh yeah, that's just a thing. It's normal Friday. No, I don't think I really understood what I was getting in for either because like I said, no one in my family had been mm. face. And so I just thought for me, like it was. Going into nursing was, um, I suppose, something that I wanted to dip my toe in. and, and yeah. So I did. I actually didn't know what I was getting into. Um, I didn't understand how it's a whole culture. Hospital-based work is a culture. There is a hierarchy and a structure and um, students are at the bottom. So when you come in as a student, you're at the bottom um, and you, you learn from different people, you gel with some, you don't gel with others. It's actually quite a, a beautiful microcosm of society because you come across all sorts of people, whether they're your co-workers or they're your patients. And it's your job as the care provider to just be what they need you to be at that time. Like you provide the care that they require, you do it in a completely non-discriminatory way um, as best as you can. Obviously your, your biases pop up here and there and you have to confront them and really process through them. And that's been big learning. Um, but things like I come from a, a background in the church, as you know, 
Um, and so lots of this conservative views held on things like women seeking abortions. I work for a hospital that provides that service for people and I had to sign a declaration when I went to work there that I would do that and I lent, lent into it in my faith and thought, you know what, I actually am willing to do that. I'm willing to be the care provider in that space because these women need love and care and that is what I'm going to do. And I actually feel no qualm about it, even though it's not something that I have openly talked about with other people who also are within the church. So that was a big bias I had to confront at the start of my career. At how old again? At this point, I was just about to start my job, so I was 20. Far out. Yeah. And that's a that whole, like the whole school life and a whole, you know, church yep. life. You know, you don't do this and this is a really naughty thing to do and it's bad. And I had to sit there and be like, I'm going to do it. How do you reconcile that? How did you do that? So I really mildly, like yeah, really mildly, how do I reconcile that? Um, I feel that it was Jesus who would spend time with the people that society didn't agree with. Yep. And so I guess women seeking abortion services are not always a group that the church wants to engage with. I was like, well, if the church doesn't want to engage with them, that's probably where I need to be. And that's where I am. And I actually feel really honored to be there. That's beautiful. That's Far out. I've got nothing. I'm going to. No, that's phenomenal. Like well done, Steph. That's and a right. woman having an abortion is still a woman who is having a type of a birth and it is a midwife's job to be with women in that space. And that's my job. And I do it with love and pride. Yeah. And, and you get to be in that space. It's actually a real honor to be welcomed into that space. Fuck. That's huge. And how long was that process in accepting that? Or was it kind of just a, like a, a good sort of just It was time. something that I knew. So when you apply, um, so when yeah. you go through uni, so you go through uni, it's like a combination of, um, I guess, class-based learning. So it's four years, you do class-based learning and you do practical-based learning, so called placements. So you do a semester or at my uni, it was trimesters, which is quite fitting given I'm a midwife. Um, three trimesters of pregnancy, three trimesters. That of translates. Uni. That's easy. Yep. So you do your trimester of learning. And then at the end of that, you go and you sit your clinical placement and you have to pass your placement. It's pass fail. So if you don't right. pass your placement, you don't pass your course. So and what sort of things would make you fail? Um, there were certain skills that you needed to be able to achieve and they grade up every year. So as a first year student, you have to learn how to take a blood pressure and listen to a heart and know what all the sounds of the heart are. And then in mm. your second year, you need to start being able to give oral based medications and know your safety and when you can give them and when you shouldn't. Um, and from there you go to like, you know, IV medications, more invasive procedures, taking bloods, putting drips all these sorts of things. So you had to pass or fail those particular things to be considered confident enough to then work in the workspace. And you think about it, three years as a nurse, four years as a nurse midwife, it's actually not a long time of training. Um, but I did figure out that if I had been paid for my clinical placements, which you're not, I would have earned an entire house deposit in the time that I spent working for free. So anyway, Ouch. gained a lot of experience, did not gain a lot of money. Um, I look back at that time and think, how did I do that? I worked four jobs and I did placement and I was on uni and I just think back and go, how did I even balance? I don't know. don't know. Anyway. Um, you did it. Well done. Yeah, we did it. We're here now. So you do all of those. So you do four years of that as a nurse and a midwife, mm. and then you have to apply for what's called a graduate year. Right. So when you apply for a grad year, you're applying to be employed by a particular hospital or an organization, and it's like a supported clinical year. So you are a fully registered nurse and midwife. So you hold a registration with the Australian Health Practitioners Register, 
or they're called APRA. We love our acronyms in the nursing midwifery world. So everything's got an acronym. Students come and they look at our what's called a hand. Yep. That tells the brief story of all the patients. So you kind of know what the flow is and what's going on. And um, it's just covered in acronyms. So they look at us and go, what does this mean? It's a complete other language. So hospital has a whole culture and a whole language. We love our acronyms. Um, and from in that grad year, you kind of have your training wheels on. So you're doing, you're fully registered. You're fully responsible for your own practice, but you have access to clinical support. So you've got other midwives or nurses that you can call on and say, uh, it's my first time doing X, Y, and Z on my own or as not a student. Um, is it okay if you come and talk it through with me and we'll do it together? So you have your training wheels on in your grad year and then you finish your grad year and the training wheels come off and they expect you to know everything. And that's quite daunting. Um, so that was also a bit of a, a shock. Um, and I reflect back now and think, oh, I wish that I'd been exposed to more in my grad year because they, they want to sort of help you and cushion you and wrap you in cotton wool and not give you anything too over the top or scary. And then all of a sudden you're a grad plus one and they're like, okay, you can take the really sick woman in bed 12 because you're not a grad anymore. And you're like, I still haven't done this before. So really finding your feet as a practitioner means knowing where your boundaries lie, knowing when you need to ask for help and knowing um, where to get that help from is a really key part of, because there's always new skills to learn. You're never going to know it all. Um, always new skills to learn in this space. And what are sort of the everyday skills that you use on average? I know there's a broad range, but what's sort of, you know, the most common day in, day out things that you so have to do? Midwifery is very broad um women have obviously when they're pregnant they have a pregnancy period they have a period of labor and birth and they have a period of what we call the postpartum so the post-birth um when there's obviously a baby you have to provide or be able to provide care across that whole spectrum and i work in a high-risk hospital as well so we have a whole ward full of women who are still currently pregnant who have high-risk medical things going on with them so my day is totally shaped by where i'm placed and as you get more proficient and more confident you have the flexibility to work across the spectrum. So when you first start, they start you off kind of in the postnatal zone. So working on the ward with women after they've had their babies and things in that space might look like um, giving medication. So pain relief medication, antibiotics, depending on what they need. Um, lots of breastfeeding support, lots of parent education, like mm. a lot of sitting with brand new mums and dads and being like, here is what the next week two weeks three weeks year 10 years of your life's going to look like you've got a baby now and this is how to look after them um making sure that you have like when you practice as a registered practitioner and that goes for any any health provider in australia that's registered with APRA, you have a duty to provide evidence-based care that's mm. in your scope of practice so scope of practice means what you are able to do what you are safe to do and making sure that you know when you are in your scope or when you're out of your scope. And that's your responsibility as the practitioner. So making sure that all the information we provide parents is something that we uh, have evidence to back up, um, giving them like education so that they feel prepared to go home, setting up ongoing supports for them. So we set up midwives to visit them at home for a couple of days after they bring their babies home. And then we pass on or we hand over, that's a term you hear a lot, we hand over their care to the maternal and child health nurses. So that's kind of what postnatal looks like. It's lots of education, it's lots of paperwork, it's lots of sitting with mums as they realise that they're not going to get a lot of sleep for the next year, um, helping them through that hurdle and then providing whatever clinical care they need in the terms of medications and pain relief and things like that. 
more high-risk yeah. things would look like blood transfusions, um, assessing wounds and things like that. But that's kind of you, where you start off with your training wheels as a midwife. Mm-hmm. And from there, they move you to birth centre. So birth centre is what you traditionally think of where the action happens. It's where yeah. the baby is born. Um, and that's a very different flow. So postnatal is like your classic patient ratio. So one midwife to four patients during the day, uh, one midwife to six patients at night. The babies are not included in your ratios. So although you're one to four, you're actually one to eight because it's like human beings who need your care. And if you've got twins, it's nine, so that's fun. Um, but labour ward is very different. So labour ward, you're generally one midwife to one patient because that's we know that that's the best standard of care that we can give. It's continuous mm. one-to-one care in labour. And that can be very varied. It depends on the, the woman that's in front of you, how many weeks pregnant she is, um, whether she's gone into labour on her own or if she's had a medical induction, whether she is a first-time mum or if she's a, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth-time mum. We do see plenty of those. My hospital's in the city, so we do see a lot of first-time mums because lots of people who live and work in the city, you know, young professionals, they have their first baby, they're in our catchment zone. So you're zoned to a public hospital based on where you live. Right. Um, And then they have their kids and then they move out west and then they go and have the rest of their babies. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, So it's very, the cohort of where you work is very shaped by the suburbs that you're in. So we get uh, a big spectrum. We get women who are like wealthy young professionals and then we get lots of refugee asylum seeker people because they get placed in the city um, in public housing. So you see the full spectrum of human society and emotion through Mm. birth. Um, so it's a bit different flow. It could be women who are um, in labour, women who are really, really acutely unwell, who've come down from postnatal ward or from antenatal ward because they need one-to-one care. So mm. it's almost like a critical care sort of situation. So you do get that as well. Um, sometimes you're caring for a woman right at the start of her labour journey. So you might be starting an induction of labour, which is where we bring on contractions and things for a baby to be born for various reasons. Um, sometimes you're getting them at the end of their labour and you get to be there for when their baby's born. That's really beautiful. It's very varied. You never know what your day's going to look like when you work there. And then other days you work in the clinics. So you come to work 8 to 4.30, a bit more of a routine vibe, Monday to Friday, and you do appointments. So that um, just depends. It's providing prenatal care, so lots of um, education, offering particular tests and things at certain gestations or weeks of pregnancy. Um, yeah, so it's it's so varied. Every day looks really different, which is actually what I love about it because I think I would get bored if I had the job where I did the exact same thing day in, day out. Phenomenal. And what was the craziest shift you've ever worked? <laughs> What's been the most wild? Um, I remember a, a shift one time. I came on and um, so often when you're not a grad anymore, one thing you get is students. So you start as a student and then you work your way up and you, your training wheels are on for your grad year and then you take them off and then all of a sudden you're handed the students and you're given the responsibility of teaching and training them, which I personally love. I love a student shift. Um, so I had a student and we had, we had a lady who had come in. Um, she was having a home birth. And then she needed a particular intervention that was outside the scope of practice of a home birth midwife. So certain things are not safe to do in the home because you um, you may need other interventions if you do. But basically, it's called the cascade of interventions. If you start doing right. interventions, you're likely to end up with more. So home birth midwives will not do certain things because there may be further intervention needed. So right. she's coming from home. She had her home birth midwives with her. This is obviously pre-COVID when you could have as many people as you wanted to come see you in the hospital. It's a bit different now. It's like one support person, which 
is challenging on a, on a number of levels. Um, but she'd come in, she had her beautiful support crew there. And I, you'll get a large variety of midwife approaches to birth. I um, have had two babies of my own. I've had two very different experiences and I feel that I'm very grounded in the normal flow of birth and I protect that as much as I can. That's my duty as a midwife is to protect the physiological side of birth, but to recognize when interventions may be needed and to escalate to my medical colleagues as required. So I am very like holistically approached to my midwifery practice. I'm very woman-centered. I'm like, whatever you want to do, I will do for you as long as you understand pros, cons, options, et cetera, whatever you want, I'm your girl, I will do it. Um, so I thought I was a great fit for this lady because she wanted to decline a number of things um, based on hospital policy. And I was like, you know what? You're very informed. You've got your support crew, whatever you want to do, I will do for you. But you've got to let me know where your head's at so I can provide you with the right care. I need to be able to respond to what it is that you need. And so they were very standoffish, very like, I don't know, you know, don't really trust you. You're part of the medical system. Oh. Very medical versus the not medical, which is very it's challenging. That kind of personality, right? Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? I'm just going to pop out of the room. You guys have a discussion amongst yourselves because we'd offered a particular intervention. And I said, you have a think, let me know what you want to do. Um, and whatever you want to do, I will do for you. So stepped out of the room with my student. We're like, we'll just give you some time. They'll pop the buzzer on when they're ready for us to come back in. And we started strolling down the hallway and an emergency bell goes off, which is not an uncommon sound in birth center. We have these um, buttons that you can hit mm -hmm. to get other staff to come in the room. Cause obviously you can't really just leave. Yeah. Yeah. So we have what we call a staff assist button. So you can hit the staff assist and it goes ding, 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 ding. And it rings constantly until someone else comes in the room and turns it off. So staff assist goes off in one of our assessment center rooms, which is like where you go to be um, triaged as to whether or not you need ongoing labor care or if you're mm. return home until labor establishes a bit more. So we go, oh, what's going on in the assessment room? So we happen to be the two people closest. So I was like, all right, well, you just respond. If you're there, you just go. And you don't know what you're walking into. So we walk in and it's a lady who had walked in off the street, come into assessment center, and we put a heart rate monitor on the baby. And it was bad. It was critical. And her um, babies are born, or well, babies are in a sack of membranes, waters. So you've, I'm sure if you've watched any American movie where someone has a baby, their waters have broken. So mm. waters broke. And it was what we call thick meconium lycor. So the baby had done a poo inside the mum, which is a sign of distress in many cases, not all, but many. Mm. Um, and so this baby with the really critical heart rate plus the thick meconium waters was in dire straits. So the decision was made for what we call a code green. We also love our codes in the medical system. There's lots of different colours and they all mean different things. But a code green is a genuine emergency caesarean section. And in the hospital I work in, you can go from baby in to baby out in six minutes or less. So if you want to have a, an emergency, our hospital's the place to do it. Six minutes. Six minutes from room to baby out. So we called the code green and you do emergency training when you are work in hospital. So you have to do these simulations where you pretend that an emergency is happening so that we oil all of the cogs and they all work together. And frankly, they work together really well when there's an emergency. Mm. We just know what to do. So someone grabs the theater trolley. I've got my student and we were the first ones in the room. So we're the ones that are attending the cesarean, even though we've met the woman 0.5 seconds ago and off we go so in a code green we don't get changed so when you go to theater you do tend to change out of your um, normal clothes into theater scrubs for infection reasons but in an emergency cesarean we've made the decision that it's 
more high risk to not like to get the change first than it is to just go. So yeah. you grab everything and you run. So we're running down the hall with the woman. It's, it's like that typical TV show scene. Um, we get into theatre. The anaesthetist puts her under a general anaesthetic. The baby's born. It's not in great condition. The pediatricians have shown up. So between two pediatricians, myself and my student, we're performing active resuscitation on this baby, which is another part of what you do while the medical team is caring for the mother. And then as we've got this baby stabilised and it was doing really well, my midwife in charge, so the boss on the floor for the day, bursts into the theatre and goes, your lady's pushing. And I went, okay. So the peds had this baby sorted. It was going to be transferred to the neonatal intensive care unit. So care was taken over by the NICU nurses. And my student and I like bolt down the hallway and we have to be like, I remember this shift really well because it was a really clear picture of when you should not, like you need to be conscious of not carrying trauma into someone else's birth room. So I stopped my student at the door and I said, we need to take a deep breath before we walk in here. Cause we cannot carry the energy from we've literally just watched someone nearly die to someone having a beautiful, straightforward, normal birth because your energy as a care provider that you carry into the room is very influential. Care providers hold great power over the people that they care for. And if you abuse that power, you will negatively impact that person's birth experience. So we caught a breath. We very calmly walked into the room. She was in the bathroom pushing out her baby and the head was already out. And I just said, pop your gloves on. Like you're doing an amazing job. And literally my student was the first one to catch the baby. He passed the baby up to the mum. The mum popped on her chest. Everyone was crying, beautiful, happy tears. And meanwhile, me and my student are just like adrenaline pumping, but trying to look very externally calm. And it was just a huge dichotomy because it was the reason that medical care exists in birth is to save people's lives when they're genuinely in trouble. And we'd just seen that. And then we ran down the hallway and we saw completely uninterrupted, beautiful, natural birth that just happens because women's bodies are amazing and can just give birth. And it was just the craziest. I think my adrenals were pumping for like four days after that shift. It was full on. That's amazing. <laughs> that student... I want to talk to them about yeah. that experience. Um, he's a midwife now where I work. And every time we see each other in the hallway, we're like, remember that bloody day? I do remember that bloody day. Wait, is he called a midwife as well? Yes. So, because midwife means with woman. So, midwife yes. is about the gender of the person who's providing the care, the gender of the person who's receiving the care. Um, so, the, the traditional term is midwife. Yeah. How many male midwives are there? Hmm. Not a lot, but they're usually brilliant. Like, <laughs> Why is that? I don't, I don't know what it is. It's like... All the male midwives I've ever worked with have been really phenomenal care providers. I feel like maybe they've had to prove themselves because it's a non-traditional role for a male. Um, so they've worked really hard to be very safe, loving practitioners and they have to. do a beautiful job. There you go. And it'd definitely be a vocational calling I if you're a male going, I'm going to be a midwife. You know, that's a no one ever questions why a male obstetrician exists. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, it's the word midwife that feels very femme. And so mm. you never ask an obstetrician, so what made you want to get into birth? But a male midwife comes along and you go, so why are you in birth, right? Mm. It's very mm. interesting. I think about that often. Yeah, and fair enough. So that would be it's an interesting choice, but good on them. All power to them. Um, so, so, yeah, that's one of my craziest days. Oh, my gosh, that's phenomenal. And I challenge anybody out there <laughs> listening to have a crazier story for a single oh, day or single what sounds like would have been just an hour turnaround almost. Yeah, and I want to be careful not to dramatise birth because I think what we see in mainstream media is birth is always an emergency. It's always dramatic and it's not. It is not always. Women have been doing it for a while. 
and know, pretty successfully. Like yeah. it's, it's challenges throughout history, but you know. When you think about the fact that the human race is where we are today, um, because women's bodies know how to give birth. Like I know we have a yeah. lot of medical intervention, and there's a whole there's a whole her story there that could be many many podcasts, and there are many many podcasts about it. Mm. Um, but birth. Uh, in its at its core is not an emergency it is a normal physiological function that women's bodies are built to do and the challenge i think as for any young midwife who's starting their career is not to um over medicalize it because primarily most women are able to just give birth with no complications you will get very very good at your emergency care what you need to get very, very good at is recognizing and protecting normal because that is harder to do in a medicalized setting. And how do you, in those stressful emergency and maybe normal, and somebody's freaking out and because it's not normal to them, it's the first time they've done it, you've seen it a thousand times now. How yeah. do you stay calm and how do you project that air of calmness? I think I've gotten better at it having had my own kids because I had never, when I was a midwife prior to having my second baby, I had never felt what labour felt like. So I think um, kind of going back to our cultural understanding of birth, we don't see it. Mm. So we fear what we don't know. That's kind of our, our human ways. If it's unfamiliar, it feels scary. And so I think for a lot of people, um, getting to know what birth looks like, sounds like, smells like, feels like is a really good way to not get scared by it. So when I was a student and before I had my second baby, I would see women um, approach a phase in their labor that we kind of call transition. So when a woman becomes transitional, it's pretty much right before the baby's about to be born. And you have a huge hormonal surge of adrenaline because you need to, um, you're you're just a muscle and your muscles work with adrenaline. So um, your hormones play uh, an integral role in the natural process of birth. And so women hit this point and it feels like they, they freak out. They they go, I can't do this anymore. I just want to run away from here. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to have this baby. I, I'm done. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And they freak out. And at that point, I get really excited because I'm like, all right, the head's going to be out soon. But as a student, when I didn't understand that that's what women did in their labours, I was like, what do I do? I need to fix this. How am I going to fix it? And this is the point in time where everybody asks for an epidural. So... I used to pay the anaesthetist and, you know, get the bloods ready and start to be like, all right, you want an epidural? We can have an epidural. But now I have learned that the transitional phase generally is a woman about to have a baby. So my role is to not freak out. I have to be the opposite of what she is because, like I said, your care provider carries power in that space. And so if I start to panic and I start to be like, I'll get you the, you know, okay, I'll just pay you the just, just don't, don't worry, I'm, I, you really, everything's going to be fine. If you start to have that air, they vibe off that and they start to panic. And so I've literally learned that the best thing to do in that space is just to lean in and really quietly be like, I think you're amazing and you can absolutely do this. I have utter faith in you and I'm right with you. I'm not leaving you alone. That's and cool. Because the role of the midwife, I think the reason why we are called with women is because we have learned through history that women just need someone to be physically present with them so that they are like an anchor so that they're not drifting away. Yeah. And that's yeah. my job. That's cool. Stare into the eyes and be like, I think you're incredible and you can do this and you are doing it and you're very safe. Everything's 
going beautifully and literally three contractions later she'll probably have a baby but you just have to not panic because if you panic and you turn all the lights and you start opening kits and things like that it actually activates their fight flight response and yeah really and they've already got the adrenal going yeah they will stop wow. them you will knock off their contractions and they will not have a baby wow yeah that's cool you said that it was only after your second child you learned mm-hmm. that why was that I didn't labor with my first child. I had two very different birth experiences. My first son, I have lived both the medical and the non-medical approach to pregnancy, which is why I feel that I have a very, um, what's the word, a very deep understanding of why women have a medical birth and why women don't, because I've been both of those women. So my oldest son, um, he was an emergency cesarean at 36 weeks gestation so a full-term pregnancy is 40 to 42 weeks is considered yep. full-term so he was a premature baby prior to 37 weeks um so 37 to 39 or 40 is considered early term so i know most people fix it on due dates due dates mm. is 40 weeks of pregnancy mm. but, um we know from research and observation mm. that women are far more likely to go to 41 to 42 weeks pregnant and that's a normal gestation So my first son, Judah, he was at 36 weeks. And so I had a medical condition called preeclampsia. So this is where the tertiary high-risk stuff sort of comes in. Um, I was being medically managed because it's very, very high blood pressure, which can cause changes in your body that lead to organ failure. So in very high, in very rare cases, but it does happen, um, your body can shut down. You get um, levels in your blood where your kidneys and your liver stop working. And if your kidneys and liver stop working, they stop cleaning your blood. You get levels that become toxic in your body. You start to have seizures and you can die. So it's a very, very significant issue. One in 10 pregnant women will get preeclampsia. We don't fully understand why it happens, actually. There's a lot in birth that we don't fully understand. Really? Because birth research is very new. So we used to base our research off male bodies and apply it to female No. Yes. Yes. What? We did. Um, So birth research is a new area of research. So when I say that you have to practice as an evidence-based practitioner, that means constantly looking for new research because there's not a lot out there. And a lot of what we base our practice on is hundreds of years old that needs to be re-researched. Based off the male body. Are you kidding me? And the research that's done on female bodies is actually quite racist and classist because it's done on white women from well right. So we're not looking at women from all these different backgrounds. Everybody's got different body shapes. Everybody's, you know, got different approaches to birth. So it's, it's uh, a flawed area, the old area of birth research, which is why birth care is not always perfect because we're basing it, if we're wanting to be medical, we're basing it on somewhat flawed evidence or we're needing new evidence or more up-to-date evidence to be able to provide better care. So thankfully we have some amazing researchers in Australia who are doing lots of work in this area and I'm very grateful that we've got them because even in my short time as a midwife, I've only been a midwife for five years, um, we've seen big changes in our approaches to labour and birth care. Like what? Yeah. So anyway, Judah, 36 weeks. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, straight for like just I came into hospital because he wasn't moving. So it's never normal for a baby to stop moving. Mm. Um, so we say and one of the parts of being in clinic is saying to women, if you have X, Y, Z, you know, condition or you notice these symptoms, you need to come straight to hospital so we can assess you and find out what's going wrong. So I came to hospital because he wasn't moving and I got a scan and somebody, I can't even remember who, somebody said to me, everything's fine, I think you're overreacting, which is also a very big problem in maternity care that we 
say to the woman, I know better than you, even though I'm not the one who's physically got this baby inside my body. Um, And they told me everything was fine and that I should go home. But I knew instinctively, and this was my first taste of what it felt like to be a mum and to have instincts, that something was really wrong. And so I went home and then I turned around and came back because I was like, I'll just come back when that shift ends and that person's not there anymore and I'll come back and see a different person. Um, And I represented to hospital and I mentioned to somebody else that he still hadn't been moving normally. And they said, oh, I know you had a scan this morning, but how about we just repeat it and and see if there's been any changes? And so they repeated it and they figured out the person who'd done it that morning had done it incorrectly. So they they were measuring a particular thing on a scan and they hadn't um, assessed for where the baby's umbilical cord was. So they were looking at pockets of fluid around the baby, which is an indicator of the baby's well-being because if the baby is oxygenated, through the placenta, they will be able to pass urine. But when babies become um, compromised, so they're not getting as much oxygen, they shut down their non-vital organs to protect their brain, their heart, and their liver. So my baby, Judah, had stopped producing urine because he was sparing his oxygen from his kidneys to oxygenate his brain and his heart. So everybody freaked out at this point and I was like told you so something was wrong um so always listen to women we know but um they literally were like you've got to have a baby and he was breech so he was bottom down head up babies are supposed to be head down bottom up in traditional maternity care again we've lost the art of breech birth which is a real shame um but they said the only option we have for you is a cesarean and I completely agreed because from my clinical background I knew that if you tried to induce a baby at 36 weeks that's the wrong way around with no fluid you've already got a sick baby and then you're going to put stress on it I was like it's a firm no from me I would like the straightforward Caesar I think they wanted to try and give me an option for a vaginal birth being a midwife and I was like you know what it's not the right call I want to have a cesarean birth and they were like yep we agree with you so I had a Caesar birth with him which was straightforward uncomplicated um but I never labored And then I fell pregnant with my second son when Judah was 14 months old. And this time I knew things were going to be different. I did a lot of things differently in my pregnancy, which is a whole nother story. But basically I proceeded to have a straightforward, spontaneous labor, normal vaginal birth. So very different. So I have both been the woman on the operating theater table about to have a cesarean and the woman who's in transition going, I can't do this anymore. Get me the freaking epidural and nobody touch me and I'm going to punch a hole through a wall. So I've been both of those people. So now that I've been both, I actually really um, relish in being able to provide care in those spaces because I've felt what it feels like to be in their shoes. And it's great. It's such an honor. You've got that empathy over sympathy. You've actually been there, done that. Yeah, and it's deepened my midwifery care far more than I ever thought it would. Not that you can't be a beautiful midwife without kids. You absolutely can be a midwife without kids. I work with so many amazing women who don't have children um, and men who don't have children. But I found for me, my perspective shifted in a way that it needed to shift to improve my practice. Speaking of shifts, how do you go with shift work? I love it. I don't know if that's really weird. Um, What are the options? Is it like... Yeah. Overnight stuff. and Yes. So um, shift work is an, an AM shift or an early is 7 to 3.30. A PM shift or we call it a late is like 1 till about 9.30. I mean, hospitals vary. Some hospitals like 2 till 10 it is a bit different, but the AM shift is pretty standard, 7 to 3.30. And then your night duty shift is about 9 PM to 7.30 AM. So that's um, a 10 and a half hour shift and overnight. Um, occasionally, and especially in the recent staffing crisis we had down here in Victoria, we were pulling doubles 
So you would work, um, say you might do an AM to PM double. So you'd start work at seven in the morning and you'd finish work at 9.30 at night. And then, or you would do a PM shift to a night duty. So you would start work at 1 PM and then you'd work all night and you'd finish work at 7.30 the next morning. I can't even remember how many hours that is. It's too many. That's that's not fair on any human being. And the scary thing is, is that you're actually not covered for your insurance. So we have indemnity insurance. Um, which covers you if you screw up um, to provide your legal fees and things because inevitably we're humans and we get things wrong. Um, but your indemnity insurance does not cover you past, I think it's 14 hours. So if you choose to work a double shift, you're also taking that risk that if you make a me- make a mistake, like a medication error or something, an error in judgment, and it, it harms a patient, you are you're not liable. And you're liable and you have to actually foot that yourself. So it, it's... It's a big stress and it's been quite a challenge um, with the expectation that we would be covering these staffing gaps recently. So we literally were taking our own registrations on the line to try and care for our patients because there was no one else to look after them and we had to make that call and it was really hard. And, and, and what? So much, so much there. So much um, there. Is it all like, so do you get a, a salary or do you get paid for the number of shifts and hours you do in a week? You get or is it like a pretty standard? I mean, if you work in management, um, so if you're a a manager or um, an educator or something like that, you generally get paid a wage, like a salary, but I get paid per hour and then with penalties on top of that. So, for example, um, my hourly rate would then have added to it my additional um, earnings because I hold two registrations because I'm a nurse and a midwife. I get paid what's called a graduate diploma allowance. And then if I work a PM or a night shift, I get paid a tariff per PM or night shift that I work because they're a bit funky hours. They're not your usual business hours. Um, if you overnight, you get paid um, extra just for being an overnight shift. If you miss a meal break, you get paid for that. If you, you get paid for your laundry, so you get paid like 70 cents in the hour to wash your clothes because you have to hot wash them. Apparently it costs more. I know my, my accountant for tax time was like, have you claimed this? I'm like, I don't know. Um, and then you also get paid um, overtime. Obviously, if you work more than 76 hours in the fortnight, which we were doing a lot of recently, picking up extra shifts, um, you get paid weekend penalties. So although your base rate might be a certain, you know, thousands of dollars a year, um, you can really flex your um, yeah. um which has been great because if you have a particular, you get paid fortnightly where I work. Mm. Like if I know I've got a big expense coming up, I can choose to put my name down for extra shifts. I can choose to put my name down for weekend shifts. If you work um, as the in charge, so if you're the boss on the floor, you get paid extra for that as well, which I also do occasionally. So that's always nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still, it sounds um, selfish almost, but it's still not enough. Like my, my brothers work as teachers and their graduate salary is $20,000 a year more than my graduate salary as a nurse and midwife. And I'm like literally keeping people alive and they get 10 weeks a year of school holidays. <laughs> yeah, like, that's rough. How? How is yeah. this? <laughs> but yeah. yeah that's the and how do you juggle two kids and shift work? With it sounds like a nightmare. Support. With a lot of support. Yeah. Um, that's kind of why the beauty of shift work as well is because um, say I work in morning shift, I leave for work at six in the morning. My husband's a tradie, so he leaves for work at about quarter past six, six thirty. So one of our mums comes to our house crack dawn in the morning to look after the Wow. Kids. Yeah. Um, but it means that I'm home by like quarter past four. And so I would rather do that and have four hours with them prior to bedtime than I think if I worked a more like nine to five job, I'd only see my kids for two hours before bed. 
and I like that shift work gives me that flexibility. Um, it means that I work a weekend every week to give me more time off in the week to be with them. And then they have a day at home with my husband, which they adore. And so it's the flexibility has worked really well being a young parent. Um, and I'm sure that that like, it just gives you the ability to change as they grow. So mm. when my kids are in school. I think I probably moved to permanent nights for a while because I mm. can spend the day when they're at school and then mm. earn extra money working overnight. Like, you know, there's just options. It gives you options. Mm. Yeah. You can, you can flex with the stages of life that your kid and family are up to. Absolutely. So you do find that, um, and I and I can work part time. Like it was never even a question when I came back from the sure. leave. There was never an expectation that I would be full time. It was like, we do shifts. You can work two shifts a week. It's fine. Like it was great. How has COVID impacted? Me kind of touched on it before. Impacted your not necessarily your job, but the environment, that little ecosystem that you work in. Mm-hmm. What's been the impact there? Because we hear about it on the news, but yeah, really, do we meet somebody that's actually lived it? It's been a continuous pressure that has gotten more pressured and I'm not sure if it's because of time or burnout or changing expectations, but it feels harder now than it was at the start. Um, I think, I mean, from a, from a working mother perspective, I was grateful that COVID afforded me the ability to keep working out of the home because it meant that life at home for my children stayed the same. They still went to their usual carers, you know, when we worked. Um, so that was a real blessing in disguise. But it's been a challenge providing good care to people in COVID when, um, you know, humans are social beings, humans are holistic, they're not just medical or surgical, they're a person with a life and a family. And so to say to somebody, oh, you can't have, you know, more than one support person with you when you come from labour is really challenging because you are not providing the care that they want, but you're providing the care that you're allowed to provide and then you have to stand in that gap and cop it from both sides, which has been very hard. Um, And I think the other thing that's been challenging is when, like, the changing policies around COVID, we've got lots of women who've been very distressed by things changing last minute, which is very fair because, you know, birth's an environment that's meant to be safe and it's meant to be um, protected from fluctuating influences, but it's not always like that. So we have had cases where women have come in and, uh, the policy at the moment is to test everybody for COVID when they arrive in the hospital. And then we sometimes have to tell women that their COVID test has come back positive. Then that impacts the kind of care that they get. We have to wear mm. PPE. So we wear like goggles, full on masks, not your surgical masks, your full on like N95 respirators, gowns, caps, everything. And it can't be that conducive to a labor having someone in the room who looks like an alien scientist standing in the corner ready to catch your baby. Like it's just, it, yeah, it's been hard. That's tough. That's tough. And you do this all with a phenomenal uh, approach and a level head, but also grace. You manage to, from what I can tell, do it with an enormous amount of empathy and calmness. And for humans in the most rural phases of their lives, it is not about us Mm. at all. Mm. Love it. I think the moment you make it about you is the moment that you need to leave the career. Because nobody comes to work as a midwife being like, what can I get out of this today? No, you don't. You have to come there being like, I'm here to serve the women that are entrusted in my care. I'm here to make sure that their day is as good as it can be because days are not always good. Um, I know I've talked a lot about birth, but um, I see a lot of the where birth and death meet in my job. 
and have to sit in that space too. Um, and so it's not always easy. And it's, but as long as you have been there and been the support that the woman needs, it is absolutely worth it. And on that beautiful note, Steph, this has been incredible. I'm gobsmacked and impressed. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for your time. Thanks for letting me talk about birth for like an hour. It's my favourite thing to do. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Have a great day.